Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Welcome to Sherwood, my ladies. It's time to talk about the adventures of Robin Hood. England, in the gallant days when history hung on the flight of an arrow or the slash of a sword, when feudal barons ravaged the countryside to live in pomp and splendor, when one man alone dared challenge the might of his country's oppressors, Robin Hood, outlaw of Sherwood Forest and his stalwart band, robbing the rich to feed the poor, ready to fight for king, for country, or for maiden fair. It's Errol Flynn as Robin Hood, Olivia de Havilland as Maid Marian, Claude Rains, Basil Rathbone, and a cast of thousands, reliving history's most colorful adventure. It's back to Sherwood, Andy Nelson. I'm pretty excited about this movie. Uh, we're, we're dealing with Robin Hood again. Robin of the Hood. And Robin uh, of the this, Hood. this picks up how many years later? 1922 to 38. What's that? 15? That would be 16. I do math. You, you. This is not a math podcast. So. <laughs> I was told, never told that there would be math. <laughs> I, um, uh, I think this was uh, this is an interesting movie to follow up with our 1922 uh, extravaganza last week, and uh, I'm excited to do so because as much as the that movie, the Douglas Fairbanks movie, held the the title of uh, being able to canonize all things Robin Hood, uh, it really only held the title for 16 years. Would you agree? Sure. That was a leading question. The answer is a definitive yes, and it's because <laughs> of this movie. Please continue. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I think that there are people still who say that that one still set the stage that even this one used as reference points. So I still think that the Douglas Fairbanks version is going to still get a lot of that. But you're largely right. This version really defined so much of what people kind of come to expect from Robin Hood. So much so that when we talk about the Disney one, I am going to be hard pressed to not feel like that it is a... Like a uh, 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 what's his name? Gus, Gus Van Sant psycho <laughs> shot for shot remake of this one. I'll take it. I'll certainly take that, and so will Gus Van Sant. Uh, I might see that parallel as a as a compliment. Uh, this series did some things that I think are really interesting, and I and and further highlight why it's important to be talking about Robin Hood and the different styles of Robin Hood, the different approaches to this character and the lore of Robin Hood, as we talked about last week. This is a a very old uh, bit of uh, English mythology. This character he steals from the rich, he gives to the poor, and uh, what we do. Here here in this film is further while we distance ourselves from the story of the crusades uh you know that was something that we really landed on last week that there's a lot of story of the the crusades this one picks up really where the robin hood adventure starts and leans in more heavily on the normans the norman v saxon uh, 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 conflict, which will be interesting to talk about. And I think that's, uh, again, what, you know, you, you could say uh, is another thing that makes this series important. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's, uh, I think, largely uh, an interesting element that is fun to kind of look at with these different iterations already between the two. In the last one, we had, you know, the first hour really kind of setting us up to the trip out of the country to go deal with this uh, and with the, the Crusades and then come back. Here we have Robin already here 
in England, kind of doing his, you know, robbing from the rich, stealing from the poor whole thing. And we have word that now in this particular version of the story, King Richard the Lionhearted, if I recall, has been taken prisoner by the Viennese and they have demanded a ransom. And uh, but John doesn't want to give that to them, even though he says he's raising the money. It's really just to keep it. Uh, and so that's another thing that Robin Hood's trying to do is steal all that money so that he can pay off the Viennese and get Richard back. That's an interesting twist that we didn't see last time, this whole additional side of that uh, story. So it's, it is pretty interesting. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of fun to see how things unfold. Even Marion, I think, largely was a very different character. Here she very much was one of the Normans and saw Robin Hood as one of the Saxons. And when they're talking, she's always just so disgusted by him. And it's great. Until that scene when he has captured her and Sir Guy and all of their men. And uh, she he kind of walks her through the kind of the... the the slums, if you will, and gives her a chance to see what good he is doing. So it's interesting to see how some of these little elements have started to change. And we have Friar Tuck, who I don't believe we had at all last time. That's right. That's right. He's a very fun character. This is also a film in 1937-38. It wears its politics on its sleeve and the connections between this film and uh, what was happening in Europe at the time are not hiding, shall we say. That'll be something fun to talk about as well. And we are going to talk about much more of that and the fact that once again, Maid Marian is Maid Marian Fitzwalter right after this. Andy, I need to ask you a question. Ask me a question, Pete. What kind of reading have you done about Robin Hood to educate you on the actual stories of Robin Hood? Well, does Wikipedia count? <laughs> nope. And you've just proven that you are a fool and a ninny, as Robin Hood might say. And that's because you haven't read the definitive Howard Pyle, Merry Adventures of Robin Hood. And I'll bet right now, because I have so shamed you publicly, you're wondering where you could educate yourself on the true lore, the true story of the legend of Robin Hood, aren't you? Oh, how I am. Indeed. I knew that you would. I knew that you would. This fellow, Howard Pyle, uh, is, uh, he's quite a guy. And he was born in 1853. And he took it to himself to start to uh, characterize in story and picture uh, the stories of Robin Hood and King Arthur and many other uh, British uh, stories of legend. And he started with The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood. And that is a story that has been released on Audible. That's right. This show is brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood by the legendary Howard Pyle himself for free, as long as you sign up for an account through us. How do you do that? Audibletrial.com slash the next reel. Audibletrial.com slash the next reel. If you start a new account there, you'll have access to the entire catalog of Audible properties. You can download anything you want or search for The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood by our recommendation. And uh, you get to keep the book for free forever. If you decide you don't want to keep your Audible account, that's fine too. Nobody's judging. Nobody's like watching you. Audibletrial.com slash the next reel. Help us out. Get a free audiobook uh, and and try out the service. I have been a member for years and years and years. I, nay, nearly two decades. I, I I I have a hard time saying that, but I have hundreds of books in my Audible account. I absolutely love it. The family loves it. Are you a member, Andy? Am I, I have calling been. you out? 
you have been, Bob, <laughs> but you, you quit the service probably because you weren't supporting a great cause like us. That's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't don't be like Andy. Be like Pete. <laughs> AudibleTrial.com slash the next reel. You know, Pete, I will say, though, I almost uh, I think I might sign up just so I can read the chapter. Chapter 10 of this book, The Adventure with Midge, the Miller's Son. <laughs> That alone makes me want to read this book. And now I'm going to start watching for Midge the Miller's son in all these adaptations as we continue our conversations. I wonder if Midge is a Fitzwalter. (laughs) Be like Pete. Don't be like Andy. Support us. (laughs) AudibleTrial.com slash The Next Reel. Thanks, everybody. This movie, Andy, this was another one that felt... Uh, it it felt so beautifully larger than life. It was it, it was every bit that same experience that I think I had last week watching this big budget sort of you know Avatar esque kind of experience watching this 1922 <laughs> silent film. Like I got what they were going for, and now here we go. That uh, here's a movie that celebrates the the frivolity of Robin Hood far more than than the weight of the backstory and you know the the crusade. And, and all of that. But we still have these big budgets, this gorgeous, beautiful technicolor, this charismatic frontman and Errol Flynn. It is like the Luke Bassaniest, Star Warsiest take on Robin <laughs> Hood of 1938 that I have ever seen. I had a blast with this movie. Yeah, that's the thing with this movie, which I mean, I didn't ever see this until probably in the last five to 10 years. Uh, It's just something that always escaped me. And I felt like this would be something that I should watch because it was always considered such a classic. And I finally watched it. And I just I had a blast with it. I think Errol Flynn just brings a lot of just um, effortless joy to the role, even though he's dressed in kind of the most inefficient (laughs) spandexy sort of outfit. It, I mean, it works. Everything really works. And I mean, that's even his outfit works in that beautiful technicolor sort of way. Everything kind of comes together. And it's just it is a fun, fun film. It's a film that I've shown to my kids several times. We always have a great time uh, with it. It's it's a breezy film. And it is like having watched so many other iterations of Robin Hood before getting around to this one. It's funny to come around to it and then look at it and go, oh, look, this is where all of these different elements come from. Not just Robin Hood, but you look at stuff like The Princess Bride and you can see how they pulled some of the stuff for Prince uh, Wesley out of this, right? Or you look at uh, something like Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Black Knight feels like he could have kind of taken some uh, elements from like Little John when they're having the little uh, quarter quarter uh, staff fight on the on the bridge right right or even like the daffy duck thing which i brought up last week but it's just like there are so many things that it clearly was something that was pulled from this and i think that is one of its defining characteristics as a film that has become an influential piece of cinema all right so uh, let's uh, start if you will by uh, walking through some of the things that you feel like this film uh, uh this this film leans on that the other film didn't like where does this fit in the canon of uh robin hood in in your head like how well do, how much better does this define who robin hood is for you uh, well i i mean like you said this film begins with him already doing the work and i think for me that always has been kind of a part of it the whole backstory i mean it is a really interesting element of it but in my head 
uh, he always was kind of there, you know, it was like this, this mythical story of just this character who's in the woods doing these deeds. And I think that to me is one of the things about him that uh, kind of made him more iconic because he became more of a myth a mythical character rather than just a real character who was off in the war and then came back like the way that this character is introduced he's like this mythical thing that's just there and i kind of think that's an important element of robin hood so i really enjoy that element of it here and how he's just there right out of the gate I think, I mean, I think that's an important place to start. Well, and and that's a the sort of central question that I I have around this is how badly do I need the origin story, the the superhero origin story, to get who Robin Hood is? Because we got so much of that in the last movie. Do I need that explanation to make this character believable to me? Like how much, you know, how much am I missing? And my answer for this film is none at all. And I don't know how, I don't know whether that's because um, I already have that sort of internalized understanding of who Robin Hood is, the the sort of culture of Robin Hood. uh, and, And I don't need it because I know who the character is as a result of that. Or is it because the movie does a good enough job of just presenting a a, a fairy tale story uh, that uh, is satisfying enough that I don't question it? If these two films had been reversed and we had this film first and then the backstory story second, it would have almost felt like they, you know, people enjoyed that first story, but they're like, I mean, it would have felt almost modern, like the modern sensibilities of that was great. Now let's flesh it out with the prequel. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's, that's kind of how it, it came to be, or it would have been if they had been reversed by doing it this way. It's actually interesting. I feel like the filmmakers, I don't, and I don't know if this is true, but I feel like they saw what, uh, what Alan Dwan and Douglas Fairbanks had done and they said, okay, there's there's some good stuff in there, but do we need that? Like, I feel like they sensed it. I don't, and I don't know if this is true, but it, it just feels that way because the way that this plays, it feels like a more natural way for the story to unfold. Yeah, I think so too. And it lets us get into some of the stuff that, that to me is more important. I really enjoyed the building the team sequence in this movie. I had a terrific time watching Robin Hood pull together these people that uh, this this goofy cast of characters, and then all of the merry men uh, it, to make a, a sort of woodland uh, cult scene <laughs> that, right, yeah. that that was just enormously satisfying. The the whole uh, you know you already mentioned the quarterstaff fight on the log, uh, the the drunk fire tuck passed out on the on the. Uh, uh, banks and the, the creek, fight yeah. by the creeks and the fight in the uh, in the water, uh, both giving all of these folks a, a chance to best Robin Hood in areas that were that are supposed to be his uh, particular strengths. You know, I actually really like that he was knocked off the log. Uh, you <laughs> right. know, those are, those are things that are really important in helping us flesh out the importance of the team. Yeah. And I I think that they do a good job of establishing that some more than others. Like I do feel there could have been a little more with Will, but it still was fine. They really focus on Little John and and Friar Tuck, which is great because those are two of the iconic characters that I have always kind of associated with Robin Hood. So I think I think it's fine that they uh, that they dwell on those. 
And just like the build building the team sequence, another key sequence that for me, I have always associated with Robin Hood, probably again from the Disney film, but really it is the arrow, like the archery tournament. That to me is another key element that this film took on as something that they wanted to do. And they turned it into like a really fun sequence. It's just, it's kind of exciting to watch. It builds to that twist of Robin Hood getting captured and and everything. It's just, it works really well the way that they construct that. And it becomes one of those iconic sequences because Robin has to compete. And I think that's, that says so much about him, who he is. And uh, so much about kind of the smarts they have in putting the whole thing together. It's it's a wonderful sequence. Yeah, I think that was a, a distinct improvement over the last uh, our last experience with Robin Hood. I'm not sure he would have had to compete in, in Douglas Fairbanks version. I, I think this was something that I, I believed he was obsessed with the the act of competition. And particularly, this one was more bow heavy than the last one. The, yeah. the bow in, in the Fairbanks version was sort of a it, it was another weapon. This one was his identity. Right. You get much more of that feeling that this is who he is. And, and that, that is uh, largely informed by his experience, you know, at the archery competition. So uh, I thought that was pretty good. How'd you feel about the violence? That was something that we uh, we talked about last time around. Uh, did this one handle that the, the sort of weird roller coaster of violence better for you? It did. I, I think that what happened in it is that, uh, and I don't know, I, I, I don't know if they just had planned it this way or if it had by... Uh, virtue of just the way that that Warner Brothers wanted to tell the story, it just didn't feel quite as uh, as free wheeling as the 1922 version did. Um, I know that the uh, the production code came into being in the late 20s, so between these two, it came into play, and so obviously they were being a little more careful with it. Warner Brothers, you know, something they probably had, were dealing with all the time with all their crime movies that they were making, as far as having to give it an ending where the bad guy, you know, got his comeuppance by the end of the film, et cetera, et cetera. I think what um, what we get uh, with this one is there is still violence, but it becomes and it's starting to become that kind of action adventure violence, where it's a lot of people getting stabbed in sword fights, because there are these big action sequences with sword fights and arrows and everything. And so it's like, kind of the action adventure, uh, sort of standard, I guess you could call it violence that we really have come to know and expect in these sorts of films, you know, where you have these big battles and everyone's fighting and and throwing benches off the the railings to knock people down or whatever it may be. Exceptional use of furniture. I'm glad you <laughs> brought was, that up. It really was. <laughs> it was really Not good. as good as as much as um, you know, when much is hiding in the I don't know what the like the weird wooden kind of beams <laughs> support beams and has his little mace and he's bopping people on the head. I was like, oh boy. That fits right in with the uh, the the dunking the bad guys in the well sequence from right. the last one. Right, I love that sequence. He's, he's so delicate about actually removing a helmet from one of the guys and then bopping him on the head. Yeah, it's so funny. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, I just wanted him to be singing "Little Buddy Foo Foo" as he did so. <laughs> right. But it was uh, the violence never quite got to the point where it seemed like it was doing. It was kicking it up a notch, I guess you could say. It was violent, but in kind of the standard action adventure 
levels of violence. We never had like a, a guy getting stabbed in the top of the head. It was always just kind of chest shots and chest hits and stuff like that. And we never got a guy getting choked and broke, like having like how Robin breaks uh, uh, Sir Guy of Gisborne's back in the last one and chokes him around that column. It was a uh, it was much more standard levels of violence, I guess you could say. <laughs> okay, that's gracious. Regular uh, war uh, violence, and, and yet we we end up with some incredible sequences of of fantastic coordinated action. And uh, you know, you mentioned the archery sequence and the escape from the archery grounds, which I thought was uh, wonderful. And that that sequence is of note because I, you know, they used more uh, 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 stunt people uh, in that sequence than any production had to date uh in any single sequence which i i think is of note uh, i and it's it's worth it there's some really cool stuff in there they actually had the stunt archer howard hill uh who is the uh, captain of the archers uh and he also plays elwin the welshman hill actually made the shot in the sequence where we see one arrow split another ar- arrow uh and he did all the shots which required hitting human targets uh he he's amazing they did some really incredible things in this movie and of course the final confrontation between sir guy Gisborne and and robin hood the the sword fight through the castle is uh is terrific it's you know again it's why you buy the ticket yeah it, it, all fantastic action sequences i mean howard hill the way that you know th- that they did the the arrows was just i mean it was it was thrilling to see how that all came to be because it all feels like arrows are really getting shot into people, which they are. It's crazy. I mean, they were paying these stuntmen and bit players and 150 bucks per arrow uh, just to get hit. I mean, they had, you know, balsa wood and metal plate padding. But still, when that thing hits you, it still is a force. You know, it's like you're getting shot, uh, but you're, you're wearing a kind of a bulletproof vest. You're still hitting, getting the impact. So it's quite an interesting thing that uh, that they were doing to capture the effects of this. And yeah, the sword fighting, I mean, some some beautiful stuff. Uh, Fred uh, Cavins was the the fencing master who was training these guys. And he said that uh, I guess both of these guys, both um, both Basil Rathbone and Errol Flynn, really just did a lot of their own stuff. They had learned a lot of the fighting and did a great job kind of making it look like they were really fighting. And that was something that they really wanted to step up because in previous films, you know, they said as they were coming into this one, we don't want it to look like some of those older films that looks just kind of like a fencing match. Like it's just people doing the the fencing moves, but not really attempting to actually hit each other. They were really trying to kick that up to a level where it, it looked like these people were actually trying to slash at each other. And it gives it a much stronger level of intensity. And it makes these action sequences something that really stands out and something that is just thrilling to watch it's still to this day. I want to talk about one shot in the uh, in the, the final scene. I bet uh, I know the, which one the, the you want to talk shot. about. It's the column, the shadow column. Yes. Is that the one? It's the shot. That's the one I was thinking you why, were going to talk why about. Why do you want to talk about it then? Because it's fantastic. It is such a great idea of a shot to throw into an action sequence that Michael Curtiz had that was just it, it 
it emphasizes everything that I was just saying about the the fight and how it's these guys and just you get to really see the moves and how well executed all of it is. It was beautiful. Do you, do you know how they did that shot? Tell me. I mean, really, do you know? Because I was moved. I'm sure it was a light pointed at them as they came out of frame. It was, but it was a light and it was pointed at somebody, but it wasn't them, Andy. It wasn't <laughs> them. Really? Think about this. Curtis couldn't get the size right of the shadow on the column with these actors, right? With with Guy and Robin as they came by. So what happens is, as you watch the scene, they come down out of frame. Two other actors move in front of a completely different pane where the light shines up on the column while uh, Rathbone and uh, Flynn move around them and continue their motion, their sword fight, exactly the same way as they move back into frame on the other side of the column. That's crazy. Wrap your head around that, Andrew. That's fantastic. I love hearing things like that. It's just it, it's such complexities and such you know film trickery that they they have to come up with this way to do this just so they can get that fantastic looking shot. And I mean, it works so well. And that's what's great about it is because it's such an effective shot that it's designed in a way where you don't even think about it because it's just invigorating to see this fight continuing from from people fighting to shadows fighting back to people fighting all in one long take. It's great. Ask me how I found this out. How did you find that out, Pete? My dear close friend, Steven, Steven Spielberg, he was telling me. <laughs> oh, was he? <laughs> Look, this is how, how is, I how found is Stevie this out. Baby? Stevie Baby, there is a shot that Steven used as an homage to this very shot in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's right, Andy. I am doing a callback right now to our very first episode in which we most clearly didn't talk about this shot, but we <laughs> should have because it's amazing. Do you know which shot it is? It would be, I'm trying to think of the shadow play shots. Um, is it in Marion's bar? It's in the Well of the Souls. Okay. Salah and uh, Indy raise the Ark out of the thing. And okay. then the shadow of them, the shadow mm. of the Ark on the wall uh, is as they're moving it through the the well. And that was, they did that exactly the same way Curtiz did this. And it was Spielberg saying, my God, this man is a genius. I'm going to use that. And they use different actors too? Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Different silhouettes. Yeah. Although uh, drastically less complicated because they both sets didn't have to learn the same choreography of the, the sword fight. Yeah, not quite as yeah, not, not quite, quite as crazy. The same. Nice. I think all of that is just wonderful, and uh, it's it again. It just makes this is the classic thing right here. This sequence through the final scene, and, and it is it's just exhilarating. Yeah, it really is. No stars fell from my letterbox review during this sequence. <laughs> well, that's good to know. All right, uh, made Marion Fitzwalter, played by Eleven uh, Fitzwalter. This is, How does that elude us all these I, years? I don't know. I'm so embarrassed. Can we? Should we go back and edit last week's show? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just now. We have to wait and see. Is that, is that something that continues? Because right. I just never knew. I just right. never knew. Yeah. 
how'd you feel about uh, about the treatment of the relationship between uh, Marion and Robin and the Merry Men? Was it an improvement over last time? Does it feel oh, earned? Good, hundred percent, a hundred percent improvement for me. The thing that I think makes that relationship work is that she is kind of the audience surrogate of seeing what it is that he's doing and kind of getting that firsthand experience of. Oh, this is you're you're stealing, but you're you're doing it in a way to help people. He's an outlaw. He's doing you know bad deeds basically. And I mean, honestly, I think it's actually played really interestingly when we first have Robin and his men take Marion and Guy and all of their men and bring them back to the Sherwood Forest. They have this like ridiculous feast. And I'm like, this is kind of, uh, you know, an embarrassment of riches that these guys are doing, like the way that they seem to be showing off. I was like, I, I feel like they're living the outlaw life and not necessarily the give back to the poor life at this point <laughs> when you see them having this big feast. But then... I think, and I think that certainly cements Marion's attitude toward him. But then you have this moment where Robin takes Marion out to, as I said earlier, kind of the slums. I don't, I don't even know where they are because it doesn't seem like they leave the forest. But all of a sudden, it's like this is where we keep the poor people. That's <laughs> really what it feels like. Yeah, right. The poor people, and it was also kind of a field hospital. Yeah. like you kind of get the feeling it's like a mash right, unit right, right. in Sherwood Forest. <laughs> I just now when I watch scenes like this, I can't help but think of Time Bandits when they <laughs> here you go, and then somebody like punches them as <laughs> but still the whole idea is this is the moment where she sees what is happening and starts to have that turn and she becomes that character that uh, that is affected by what Robin is doing because Robin is a character who doesn't go through a growth in his character arc. He keeps doing what he's doing and his character is the type that gets other people to change around him. And I think that's kind of a key thing. And she is the one who really we're witnessing that with. And I think that's a critical element to have in the story. At least it always has been for me. So watching uh, Olivia de Havilland as Marion see this and make that change over the kind of the course of the next chunk of the film, I think is very important. So I absolutely think that this is an improvement over the way that she was treated in the last film. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think I don't think we I, I don't want to move on past this point without at least acknowledging that this is a huge trade-off uh, that they made by picking up the story where they did in this movie and where subsequent Robin Hood films pick up the story that we don't have any sort of transformation of our key central character, Robin of Loxley. Without that origin story, we don't see him, uh, you know, sort of impacted by what's going on at home and deciding to make a change and, and to betray, you know, his king to go back and take on the mantle of the hood. And I think that was a, that's a point of transformation that we don't that we don't get i i think you're absolutely right our change character and i'd say chair change characters are you know in orbit of robin hood in this movie and she is uh central to it i love their relationship and to Havland and and flynn i think they did a total of nine films together ultimately and this one was the third am i right yeah this was their third film together after um captain blood and the charge of the light brigade yeah and I, I think this is a, uh, this is terrific. I feel like you can see it. Their scene, you know, their uh, scene is just perfect when he climbs up the window. And there's this great shot where it looks like he's climbing sideways along the wall. I just, I yeah. always tripped out by that 
that shot as he climbs <laughs> through her window. Um, he is capable of so much. Uh, but but th- that entire sequence between them is she's, you know, she begs her maid to please leave us alone. We're going to we need to have a little talky talk. And and uh, they just I just I buy it. I buy their relationship. This whole Romeo and Juliet thing. Norman Saxon, uh, you know, uh uh, romantic split. I think it just really works for me. It adds another element to the movie that that was missing last time. I did they even bring up the whole Norman Saxon element in the last film? I, I don't feel like they I did. Like I really, was like focused on did. the Crusades. That was yeah. it, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And that's yeah. really interesting. And I think that's a point of of just sort of underlying the mission of the movie, or I won't say the mission, but the message of the movie. Uh, and and it really stuck out to me. And so it was rewarding to find. Uh, this in uh, speaking specifically of the Warner Brothers. So here's a, a quote from an, uh, an article from, uh, oh gosh, well, I'll find it. Uh, he says, the Jewish Warner Brothers were the most vocal and adamantly opposed to Hitler's rise in Europe, and theirs was the first studio to pull films out of the German markets and make anti-Nazi pictures. In turn, The Adventures of Robin Hood emphasizes the Norman and Saxon divide within England to a much greater degree than later films, and as we add earlier ones, which uniformly simplify it to the rich versus the poor. I think that's one of the fun things about this movie, that we have all the rich versus poor, flamboyance, class warfare, all of that stuff. But we also get the the fact that this was, uh, this was a nation at war. Which is an important element. And actually, I, I did appreciate that it was kind of brought up toward the end uh, by Robin, when he's talking to Richard, who's disguised at that point as as a, a bishop, or I can't remember exactly what he is, but he's kind of in his little disguise in the black robes, and he's like, uh, uh, you know, when he's talking to him about how uh, what Prince John is doing, and Richard says, "Oh, and you, you know, so who's at fault, or is you know, you blame." Uh, John, he's like, no, I blame Richard for not for abandoning his country or whatever. And I, it was like it, it was an interesting perspective to kind of put on here. This whole idea of not being at home and being off at war to carry out these crusades when he should be here, where he has all these problems. And it was an interesting perspective to kind of put in front of the king without realizing he's the king, obviously, but still just to kind of to put it out there. And it did make me wonder. Is there something going on in uh, the kind of the the lead up to uh, World War II that we're kind of in at this point, particular point in time that people were reacting to and and the way of kind of, you know, that staying at home and, and, and protecting, protecting what's yours as opposed to kind of protecting the world, so to speak. I was, and I, I was just wondering, and I, I haven't done any research on that, but it seems like this is the sort of mentality that people might use to kind of put in as just kind of a little line to kind of uh, throw in as a way to kind of discuss what's going on in the world outside of the movie. Yeah, there's a sort of ideological worldview that that at least presents a conflict, that there was a conflict that the, you know, even the filmmakers were trying to to lay in here. I should add that the last passage was from writer David Crow over at Den of Geek, who wrote a fantastic piece on on uh, love of this movie. So uh, sorry, I missed that when I actually read the passage. Uh, I, I, speaking of characters that I find myself missing, 
do you miss the sheriff of Nottingham? It feels like I'm not seeing him in these la- this last movie and this one. Where where is he? Uh, well, uh, and I'll be honest because the the Disney one, which again is kind of my initial point of entry for this whole character. The sheriff was always bad, but he always was kind of bad in kind of a goofier sort of way. And I feel like this character fits that to a T. He was a very kind of inefficient. I don't. I'm not sure what the word is, but yeah. just uh, he was he, a lackey. He was, he was a, just a but lackey. he was he was like he was a he was uh, a coward, yeah. and it, but in a really funny way. Like the way that he played it was always pretty funny. Like he always had excuses as to why he was not doing stuff, and so I thought that was actually pretty funny. I liked that element of the of the sheriff. What was interesting about it, which I think um, it's it does stand out, is that he is the one who comes up with the whole idea for the archery tournament. Guy of right. Gisborne, I mean, you know, his whole plan is to just do everything he can to catch Robin Hood and destroy him. I liked that at least the sheriff is kind of coming up with things, and so that was that was pretty interesting. But I totally get your point, and he is an interesting character that will be interesting. I think watching him and watching Sir Guy of Gisborne. Over the next set of films, it'll be interesting to see who the filmmakers and the storytellers are really favoring as the big bad. Yeah, I that is the thing I'm looking forward to the most, because my central image of sharing Sheriff of Nottingham, whatever you think of the movie as a whole, and it's Alan Rickman. In, in Prince of Thieves, he defines the sheriff of Nottingham. And I think my image of him as the sheriff has supplanted all others. And now my memory is when did they flip that switch? Because that movie uh, turns the relationship between the sheriff and Guy of Gisborne on its head. Right. It's it is Michael Wincott's character. That's the idiot. Uh, and and it's the sheriff. It's Alan Rickman, who's the the uh, big bad smarty. And and so I'm excited to see, you know, when when did they make that transition is and and was you know old two by fours version of robin hood the first one that actually uh that actually made that transition i'm very curious well unfortunately there are so many versions between uh between all these ones that we're talking about that uh who knows but it will be it'll be something that we'll have to look into is there another version of the sheriff that is as evil as Alan Rickman is well, by the time we get to 1991's version. Right. Evil and intelligent and like with, yeah. uh, you know, with agency. Yeah. yeah. And didn't he also have a witch that he worked with? Like there was a whole thing. Oh, there there's that a I whole also... thing. Yeah. Yeah. A whole thing. I'm really curious to get back to that I one. Know. After <laughs> watching these two, that my memory of that movie, it's just all gone bananas. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, but I mean, this one does it. They cast this one really well. And I mean, bringing bringing some of these people on to play these roles, even the sheriff, who I think is fantastic. I mean, you you have Melville, Melville Cooper playing the sheriff and I, you know, he's just so funny in the role. I don't know. I find him to be funny. And you're right. I think that having a kind of more a malevolent sheriff probably works. But in what they're doing with this film, especially when you have Claude Rains playing this, this kind of oddly foppish version of Prince John, it was just it was it was funny to see him playing Prince John because I was like I never quite knew what he was doing, but I always loved it. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> but then balancing the, the that, color had his hair and his goatee didn't match. That was my favorite. <laughs> there were some great colors in there. 
But then having like what uh, what Basil Rathbone was bringing um, to Sir Guy of Gisborne and Melville Cooper as the Sheriff of Nottingham, both of those guys opposite Prince John, it was just kind of this fun trilogy of those three villains that I really had a good time with. Can we talk before we move on to to the uh, um, fantastic stories of of craziness getting it made? Uh, I, I want to talk about uh, King Richard, played by Ian Hunter. Um, there, is, this is one of those movies with what I can only characterize as a ridiculous mistaken identity uh, gambit in this movie. <laughs> I was I was infuriated by it because it's head slappingly stupid that only the hood is what prevents people from actually knowing who the king is as he returns to England. Were you as moved by as, by this as I was? It, not just the king, but every everybody. Like Robin Hood does that several times. And, yes, I mean, in the, the archery the plot, tournament, it's just the ridiculous. archery tournament and the end when they come into the the coronation of <laughs> Prince John. They're all disguised with their little abbey hoods. And nobody knows who they are. And now, granted, it's not the period of social media where everybody's photos are everywhere. But these are people who actually knew one another. Like right. they had met and spoken to one another inches from each other's faces. Yeah, right, right. No, it's, it is one of those things. It's not like enough time passed where you could have a Summersby sort of, you could be him, but I don't know sort of thing going on. I, I do think that it, um, it's a stretch. It's always a stretch. And uh, yeah, it, it's a tough one. <laughs> He's great. I, I like him. And I like the grand reveal at the end. I just wish maybe he'd at least ripped off his beard. You know, like, come on. Give me. <laughs> or he's been wearing glasses. He, if he right. was wearing glasses and he took the glasses off, I With totally would have bought it. Right? <laughs> hey, how do you like me now, eh? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. You want to talk a little bit about getting it made? Yeah. It's what's funny about this one is that, you know, Warner Brothers had been kind of a, a studio that was built on a lot of these great crime films that, that had, they had been very successful with. It had been a great home for them, always black and white. And so they wanted to do this property. And James Cagney, of course, was their big actor. And so they're like, well, let's have him do it. And uh, this was right at that point um, where Warner Brothers had a falling out with Cagney, uh, which they had a number of times. It was they were um, difficult. Warner Brothers was difficult. It was the studio and this whole studio contracts that they had. And Cagney just uh, he was not big on on that and and uh, walked out on his contract. And this was right when he was going to be doing that. And so the the filming of Robin Hood got delayed because he was gone. And then my understanding is they talked to Robert Donat, who we had talked about when we did um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So he, they were going to talk to him about it, but he wasn't interested. And then they're like, well, you know, this this uh, Errol Flynn guy has been doing good for us with some of our um, these action adventure movies that we have been doing like Captain Blood. And uh, they're like, well, you know what, let's let's give it a try. And uh, so they brought him on to do it. And it, boy, talk about 
the right uh, decision. You know, it, it just it, just because those other two guys didn't end up working, they ended up casting Errol Flynn in this role, and it's, it, I think it became such an iconic thing for everybody. So, so I, I love that it kind of ended up working out that way. You know, the, what about the relationship between Michael Curtiz, William Keeley, and Errol Flynn? Yeah, that's a good point. We we haven't talked about the direction of this, but it is credited with two directors, Michael Curtis and William Keeley. And Keeley is a director who was kind of a, a studio regular. He came on board and is a guy who uh, I could direct well. He directed plenty of projects. I mean, on IMDb, he's credited with uh, just, I mean, 37 films, but, uh, you know, he's he's done quite a bit of of. Uh, projects and knows how to direct. The thing is, they realized that as they were making this, that he wasn't a good action director. And they just couldn't just they couldn't make it work. And uh, he wasn't bringing the life to it that they needed. So knowing who Michael Curtiz was, and knowing what he could do, they're like, let's bring him on board. This was again, that period where People were on these studio contracts. So studios were fine kind of swapping directors around to find the right one. And so they brought in Michael Curtiz to do this. They both got credited. This is not like Dexter Fletcher not getting credited on Bohemian Rhapsody sort of thing. When he came in to finish that movie, Michael Curtiz and William Keeley both got credited because they both directed portions of this movie. But largely all the big action stuff, that's all Curtiz. All of the really gripping stuff that I think makes this movie what it is, I think Curtis is the one who gets the credit. Yeah, it's, it's a rough calculation, but everything I've read says something between 55 and 60 percent of the film is should be directly credited to Curtis and, you know, 45, 50 percent should yeah. go to to Keeley. So interesting mix up. And it was it, it, most interesting that that Errol Flynn reportedly did not have a great relationship with Michael Curtiz personally, and they clashed a lot. Uh, at, at one point, uh, Curtiz had told <laughs> one of the other actors to uh, remove the safety tip from his sword to make the action more exciting. And then that actor proceeded to stab Errol Flynn with it. And <laughs> And, and when Flynn says, why was that not covered? <laughs> it's reported that uh, that Flynn marched up, climbed up the scaffolding, marched up to Curtis, grabbed him by the throat and said, is this exciting enough for you? So uh, lots of wonderful rumors of clashes, stories of clashes on set. But I, I think Curtis knows how to get, you know, that sort of great action performance uh, on film from these guys. And I, this is a film that's a testament to that. Olivia de Havilland ran into issues with Curtiz as well. And I mean, she said that he's a great director, but very much the sort of uh, director who's just very intense, pushes his actors. He's not there to be the actor's friend. He just pushes them to get all of the uh, stuff that he needs out of them to the point where, I mean, he hated lunch breaks. You know, he just wanted to kind of keep cranking and just move through. He would try to, he would take as the shortest lunches he could just to kind of keep moving. And it was, just, it was hard for his actors. You know, they, it really pushed them to their limits. But, you know, in the end, what we end up having really ended up working pretty nicely. So, uh, so you got to still give him credit for, for delivering quality in the product. 
This is the first uh, Warner Brothers studio movie shot in Technicolor. Ah, glorious Technicolor. And man, you can feel it. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Yes, they pretty much put Technicolor on. It's like everybody's wearing Technicolor. Right. I think they went they went to the Technicolor store and bought extra Technicolor extra fabric. Technicolor. Because holy well, cow, it it really makes the the work of of costumer Milo Anderson. I mean, the the costume team got to just have a fantastic play date uh, dressing these actors. I mean, the the costumes are gorgeous and vibrant and rich, and there they are, stories of of painting real living trees uh, a, a brighter shade of green so that they can really make use of of the vibrance of this technicolor uh it, it's you could just you feel it you just feel it i think it's a it's a beautiful beautiful print yeah it's stunning especially the restoration that they did i mean it's just crazy to look at it and these colors i mean they're just popping off the screen at you it's it's just so beautiful to look at and that's one of my great joys of watching this film is it feels very much like with the bright colors the way that they are it feels like very much this fantasy tale it just it it just pops and everything about it is just this heightened sense of reality that works because of that and it just i don't know it makes for a film that is invigorating to watch I don't want to move on without uh, talking about Alan Hale. He's back as Little John. And remember, last week, one of the things that I'm going to stand by is Little John is better older. And right. I think Alan Hale gives us a case example of why that is true. I He was so much fun, so much fun in this version. And I dramatically prefer him here to uh, his portrayal of the same character uh, in 22. By this point, they were figuring it out. And by cutting out that beginning, they gave us a chance to see the team building and to have that moment on the bridge and to really kind of develop these characters more. So I I had a great time with him in this film. And this is kind of that little John that I remember. So he's fantastic. And I know we're not going to be talking about the other film, the other version that uh, he was in where he plays. Little John again in what was it 1950 I think that we said yeah but so uh, we're not going to be talking about that one or something the Rogues of Sherwood Forest right 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 is the is the film but I do feel like that might be one that I might just seek out on my own just so I can see how he does as uh, this version of uh, Little John as a guy who is now you know that much older 12 more years um, before he played it again and uh, just seeing little john aging i, I don't know I, I think that you're right there's something nice about how he's aging into that role how about eric wolfgang korngold andy this is some of that music I'm that telling kind you, of man. iconic 30s movie music that just it just sings doesn't it ah uh. Oh, this is an incredible symphonic uh, score, and uh, it is beautiful. And to hear, you know, to hear how he talked about it and how he approached it, that this was, a, you know, for him, he approached it like any of his other operatic projects, that this was, uh, he approached it like a, a stage operatic piece, and you just feel it every single note. I am, uh, I think it's just luscious and such a great story behind it. It's kind of a shocking story when you hear it. Yeah, Eric Korngold, he says that this score saved his life. And when he says that, he really means it because he was actually asked to do this. And this was a period of time when he was still living over in Vienna. 
they asked him to do this. He came over to Hollywood and, and uh, you know, he was kind of interested in doing it. He watched the movie and he said, I can't do this. I cannot. It's too much action. I don't write action music. I don't I won't know what I'm doing. You're going to have to throw it away. And you're going to have to hire somebody else because you're not going to be happy. I'm not going to be happy. It's not going to work. And uh, they said they really wanted him to do it. And so um, they were trying to figure out a way to make it work. At that particular point in time, Austria was annexed by the Nazis and his home was confiscated. And he, you know, was at risk of uh, getting basically caught by the uh, the Nazis. And so he told them he would compose the score. But they had to help him get his family out of there. And so so they did. So they worked on getting his uh, his wife and his son out of there. I think his son got out of there on like the last train out of there before everything got shut down. And um, and and he wrote the score. And it's a beautiful score that I think just just works so well for the film. It just it's it's fun. It's got just a, the 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 action adventure spirit. It's kind of a defining score, I think, in 30s Hollywood. So it's good stuff. Well, and and that's uh, totally and, and uh, that's what I think really sets it above and beyond other you know, scores for other lesser films or even other films of equal quality and stature with worse scores. I mean, this is a a film that uh, a, a score, I think, that transcends. It helps the movie transcend just what is on the celluloid. And that's why, like, it feels so much like a, a Star Wars. Like, it feels so much like, uh, you know, you can really hear John Williams' inspiration in a score like this. It's it is uh, it, it's that big and beautiful and fun. Uh and and just allows it to drive the action. Yeah, it really does. It's it's a beautiful score. I mean, we've talked about uh, King's Row that Korngold also composed, and that was very much a Star Wars. Uh, you could see the the line from that score to Star Wars. It it very much feels like. John Williams pulled some of that. So yeah, clearly I mean, quite literally. Yeah, quite not literally. just inspired, but yeah, transposed. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So um so it's obvious that you have a score like Robin Hood, it is going to be something that influences the John Williams of the world, certainly. This show is sponsored once again by you. That's right, you, the listener. And here's how you can help us this week. You can check out the latest merch. Yeah, we've dropped some new stuff into our Tee Public store. Lots of fantastic designs inspired by the movies that we are talking about. There's some really fun Robin Hood uh, designs that we've uh, dropped in there. In addition to our own new stuff, if you have, if you're part of our community and you have ever wondered what it's like to be patient zero, if you've ever watched a movie and felt like everyone else is following your lead, you can get your latest I Am Patient Zero shirt, uh, which uh, I'm very happy with. We've also got stickers. We've got, uh, you can put it on a mug you can do whatever you want uh, with it lots of different options there i've uh, we've put the marvel movie minute uh, stickers up there i'm sure by the time this actually is released there will be even more stuff up there including some of our uh, classic designs for now as we continue to build out that store but that's our big project is increasing the merch we've had requests we're trying to answer the requests and i think we've got some fun stuff uh, on the docket so far 
what what do you think, Andy? Are you excited about the merch? You can't have enough merch, Pete. You really can't, you can't have enough merch. <laughs> That's the truth. The only the only thing that uh, I think we're going to have a hard time with over here is that you know every time somebody else becomes patient zero, I would feel like we'd have to you know swap shirts and we'd have to give them the shirt now because oh well you know so and so is is the new patient zero. It's well, it's a sisterhood it, of the traveling shirt. It's you just yeah, have the, to mail it to whoever. There's actually <laughs> right. that's the problem is there's only one, and when you buy it. It comes to you, and it, it smells like there's only one. So we're sorry about that. <laughs> uh, good luck. Check out the store, uh, thenextreel.com, uh, and uh, get yourself a Patient Zero shirt or whatever else you want. It's good. Thanks for helping. We've been talking about the cast a little bit and stuff, but I, I don't feel like we can continue talking about uh, anything else until we get this little interesting tidbit out. Did you know that the horse that made Marion uh, rides was named Golden Cloud? No, well, Golden well, stop Cloud. You there. I did not. Yeah, see, All I right. knew I'd stump you with that little tidbit. Well, Golden Cloud was admired so much by a particular person in Hollywood that that particular person bought Golden Cloud. And then that person renamed Golden Cloud. And that this this horse became one of uh, the most famous animals in show business. Do you know what that horse was named to? Mr. Ed. That man was Roy Rogers. And the horse that she's riding is Trigger. Isn't that an interesting little tidbit? Yeah, that is an interesting tidbit, Andy. I'm glad you brought that to the show. That's what I'm here for, Pete. Although I don't know if I'm disappointed that it's not Mr. Ed. <laughs> Somehow I'm not surprised that you would be disappointed that it's not Mr. Ed. <laughs> uh, I had to do it award season. You know, this uh, it was still a period where awards were growing. There weren't nearly as many as there were in uh, in these days. The Academy Awards was really the place for uh, awards. All the other awards that it has won or been nominated for are all recent ones, like for the best classic DVD release, things like that. Um, in 1939, though, at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for four Oscars. It won for three of them. It won for Best Art Direction. It won for Best Film Editing. It won for Best Music Original Score, which we just talked about. And it was nominated for Best Picture. Unfortunately, that went to You Can't Take It With You. I don't know if I can really argue that too much. I think that's a pretty solid film. So... Any thoughts on that? Well, at no point, it sounds like, did it win for best or smartest horse? <laughs> and I'm thinking maybe had they cast Mr. Ed. <laughs> that might have been it. They would have had a shot. Yeah. <laughs> but this was a period in time where it was 10 films nominated for best picture. So it was one of those 10. And uh, you can't take it with you is the one that won. I, uh, I, that sounds, I, I guess that's fine. I, this is, it, it's one of those films, this big budget sort of blockbuster feel. There, uh, it feels like, of course, it's not going to win Best Picture. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it, it feels kind of historically right that it didn't win Best Picture and that we're talking about it and not, you can't take it with you tonight. Well, you can't take it with you wouldn't fit very well in a Robin Hood series. Well, it's so less appropriate. It's <laughs> more of a reach. <laughs> <laughs> How to do uh, in the uh, box office? 
Uh, Errol Flynn's Robin Hood tale cost a cool $2 million to make. Warner Brothers' most expensive film up to that point in time, which is, and that's about $36.9 million in today's dollars. And again, the Technicolor, the fact that they went so big in scale with this one, as opposed to kind of their black and white crime thrillers that they had been making up to that point. So it makes sense that it, it cost that much. The movie was released May 14th, 1938, and it was praised by critics and audiences alike. The movie went on to become the sixth highest grossing film of the year, earning back almost $4 million, which is $72.3 million in today's dollars. Uh, I have a side note on that, though, Pete, that I found to be quite interesting in context of box office grosses at the time. So this was a note I found in uh, just a, a page on Wikipedia about 1938 in film. At the time, box office numbers were reported as a percentage of business for each theater in comparison to normal business. For example, Alexander's Ragtime Band performed at 227% and The Adventures of Robin Hood at 170%. That is why exact dollar grosses for films are unreliable at best. That is why, what is the, uh, wow, I wonder, is that part of the rationale, like, because studios owned theaters? Yeah, it's. I, I feel like that might have been something. Like, this film did exceptionally well. It did 170 times what normal business is. So I, I feel like it's an odd way to judge things, but I think that's one of the reasons why we have a really hard time kind of gauging all of these financial statistics with these movies. And I feel like, honestly, this is kind of a, a, a random aside, but... If more companies went back and dug into the the archives of their finances and they found information about some of these old films and really tried to put it into perspective, I feel like there would be an interesting uh, rebalancing of some of these movies as far as how well they did. Like, would Gone with the Wind be so far above everything else or would there be some other films that were closer uh, behind it? I don't know. I just uh -huh. don't know. I think that that is a great side project for you to begin lobbying studios for uh, box office receipts from the 30s. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be eager to take your call. That's right. And I will live tweet the entire thing. Yes, as it should people, be. People will love it. As it should be. Uh, well, anyway, uh, back to this film. Uh, the movie did end up having an adjusted profit per finished minute of $346,000. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, this is a film that uh, it was Flynn and the film itself that really sealed the deal on the longevity of this project, more so than how much it made at the box office. Well, it, it has been uh, worth it to watch again. I'm very excited to continue our journey and see just how much of this film has uh, cemented the lore of Robin Hood and the rest. Uh, but for now, I think we need to just sit up straight tuck in our shirts, put on our big boy pants, and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see the list of movies that Andy and I have talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it'll be take, you'll be taken straight over to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, The Adventures of Robin Hood versus Stromboli. Adventures of Robin Hood, please, Andy. Robin Hood, indeed. The Adventures of Robin Hood are Fargo. Oh. Yeah, Fargo Nuts. for me. Yeah, Fargo. Wow. The Adventures of Robin Hood or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. I'm going to say Robin Hood. 
Yep, Robin Hood for me. The Adventures of Robin Hood or Son of the Bride. Ricardo Dottie. Yeah, I'm going to say Robin Hood. I I feel like I want to say Son of the Bride. Yeah, but that was a little bit wavery. I I don't know. My memory of it is pretty high. Yeah, wavery, though. I I don't remember wavery. I just, if it was, no, you just now... Yeah, I feel like it. It just sounded wavery. It feels like you're going to give it to me. <laughs> I'll give it to you, but I <laughs> would probably put Son of the Bride on first. This is my mind power. The, the Adventures of Robin Hood or Contagion. Mm, I'm, That's I'm, what Sir Richard needed to bring back from Vienna. Yeah. He's a disease. <laughs> <laughs> Wiped everybody out. Uh, I am going to say, why am I laughing so hard at, at that? That's not <laughs> funny. Because you're a sick individual, uh, Pete. I'm, I'm probably going to say contagion. We're getting into that. that I'm going to say Robin Hood. Are you really? Yeah. <gasps> oh, wow. Okay. You can have it. There you go. Because why? <laughs> because I'm a gentleman. Because I, yeah, because I gave in to you. Yep. Uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood or Scarlet Street. I'm going to say Scarlet Street. Yeah, I'm going to go with Scarlet Street. The Adventures of Robin Hood or The Hurt Locker? Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker for me, too. The Adventures of Robin Hood or Out of the Past? Oh, totally Out of the Past. Yeah, Out of the Past. The Adventures of Robin Hood or The Great Escape? Great Escape. Great Escape. There's a movie that likely had some action influence from Robin Hood. Right. All right, that puts Robin Hood at 116 on our flick chart. That is 116 out of 411 films, which is about a 72%. Not bad. How'd it do on your list? Very similar. Uh, It landed at 1034 out of 4168, which is a 75%. Well, it did better on mine, so suck it, next reel. It came in (laughs) at 178 out of 1095, which is an 84%. If I were to go by the algorithm at letterbox.com slash the next reel, that should be a straight-up four-star. And I I feel like that's where I'm going to go. Straight-up four stars. Yeah, with a heart. What about you? Interestingly, that's exactly where I am. Four mm-hmm. stars and a heart. I think it may be less interesting and more predictable with a ranking like that. <laughs> well, it's one of those films where I could very easily have given it five stars because I feel like it's it's so iconic in what it is doing and what it was trying to do that certainly it, it could very easily be called a five-star film. I just think for me, it's one that I enjoy watching, but I I. I don't know. I just, in the end, I don't love it as much as I would want to. So it's it's a four star, and I but I I still love it. I mean, I still have a great time with it. Well, it's one of the the crimes of flick chart, right? That that um, I we have been done nothing over the last hour but gush over how much fun this movie is, and yet it ends up as a four star movie. Uh, and, and I'm with you. I mean, there's just sort of a puzzling little emotional engagement there that that uh, I I adore this movie. I think it was really fun. I watch I, I'll watch it again absolutely, and. Uh, it it just didn't didn't crest the top. Yeah. yeah. What are we doing next? Where do we go from here? I actually don't even know where we go from here. I, there are so many Robin Hood <laughs> movies. How how am I supposed there to keep so up? So many Robin Hood movies. Which one's next? <laughs> we are going to be looking at. Uh, it will be an interesting switch in tone 
and uh, really everything. We're going to be jumping to <laughs> 1964. We are looking at uh, the Brat Pack. Sorry, the Rat Pack. <laughs> I don't know why I jumped to the 80s all of a sudden. We are jumping to the Rat Pack's Robin and the Seven Hoods. That will be a lot of fun, uh, especially if you hear me say fun in quotes because of how we felt about Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, that was a rough one. (laughs) That was rough. I'm curious, uh, I think, more than anything else. But we have heard. We have heard reports in the Discord community that, uh, in fact, this one might be the most interesting because it's the most different of all of them. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, Very excited about it. You know what you should also do is check out the Marvel Movie Minute. We've wrapped up Season 1, but I'm going to tell you a little secret already. The spreadsheet is ready for Season 2. We're we're starting. We're starting the work. It might be slow. It might be a spark. But the spark grows into into something bigger than a spark. And that's what we're getting to right now. So if you haven't listened to season one, Iron Man, you should check it out uh, and get yourself all ready for season two, The Hulk. When the movie ends, the conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon sometimes doeth. Except when they don't. Yeah. So we're split uh, this week. I ended up going to see what the kids had to say over at commonsensemedia.org, and I went up. Uh, I went up because there is a a 13-year-old who has a lot to say about this movie. Actually, not very much, but a very important point must be made. Mm, Let me hear it. This is a fun film for the family from Rock and Roll Greasers. He says, everyone of all ages will enjoy this movie. Robin Hood is a very good role model. The film is very exciting. However, many people in this film get shot by his arrows. Make sure you're okay with your kids seeing that. Other than that, no (laughs) complaints. You know, I kind of get the feeling that Rock and Roll Greasers, what he's really saying is, I saw this. And my parents weren't okay with it. <laughs> and so I want parents, I want you to figure this out before you let your kids watch it because it's very confusing, these mixed messages. It is. It's uh, you want to make sure you know what you're getting into. Yes, so you I'm do. glad that, that they're there to help. What do you got? I am looking at a, a three star Pete over on Amazon. We should say there aren't a lot of reviews of bad reviews of this film. All the bad reviews are the atrocious media on Amazon. Yes. In fact, there I found a three star of somebody complaining about the aspect ratio, completely disgusted with the fact that they uh, did not release it in widescreen, even though they did such a beautiful restoration of it without realizing that widescreen didn't exist yet. So, <laughs> oh, that's... <laughs> There are some of those, which is fun. But no, I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at a three-star by Mama Cook, who says three stars. I hate it. Price was good. (laughs) Bought it for my husband. He likes it. I hate it. Price was good. Packaging was good. Happy husband. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they say, right? (laughs) That's what they say. Happy. Oh, wait. 
Price was good. Happy husband. That's an aphorism Price somewhere, was good. right? Packaging was good. That's, we can Happy take husband. that as axiomatic. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.